you would this morning turn with me to the 19th Psalm, Psalm 19. Beginning in verse 1, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit under the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Verse 7, David writes, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer." Here in this psalm, we find that David is going to look at two ways in which God has declared himself. Before we begin, I'd like to say that God willing, over the next few weeks, perhaps months, I would like to uh, spend our time together on Sunday mornings looking at the basic fundamentals of the doctrines of grace, but also of God himself, uh, to try to bring these things to a very elemental elementary level, not to try to uh, dumb it down, but to be very, very plain and very clear. And as I began to think about the doctrines of grace, for instance, which we see are found in different phases, for instance, you have the eternal phase, the things God did before the world even began, the legal phase of salvation, meaning the work which Jesus did at the cross, which purges from our sins, we'll look, Lord willing, at the vital phase when that's made real or vital in our own experience. There's a practical phase of salvation of how it impacts our life as well. And then there's the final or eternal phase where we'll be with the Lord in glory. All those things, I believe, are very important for us to comprehend, understand, and be able also to uh, utter and defend. And so God willing, over the next few weeks and months, we'll try to look at these things in a systematic way if God will uh, lead us. But as I began to think about the fundamentals of the doctrines of grace and it's imperative, obviously, that we start with the doctrine of God himself. Um, you know, there are very vital questions, I believe, that demand an answer. Is there a God? Who is he? What is he like? What has he done and what does he do? And the Bible answers those questions for us, that yes, there is a God. And it tells us what he's done and the things he's doing and will yet do. It tells us about his nature, his attributes, who he is the character of God, that while on one hand God is gracious and merciful, on the other hand he's a God of truth and justice, a God that cannot put up and cannot um, condone 
ungodliness and sinfulness, and it must be taken care of. But yet in God, we also find that he has a method in which he takes care of sin, both for his elect, but also for the wicked. And so those are things we find in his word. So those questions are very important. Is there a God? Who is he? What is he like? What does he do? Then there's also the question, where have we come from? And there's so many theories, obviously, about that. And, um, but the word of God is clear. But it also then begs the question, as we look at society around us, how have things gotten to where they are? If we believe Genesis 1, and God said it is good and very good, how in the world have we gotten to the place where we look at things and say that is bad and very bad? <laughs> uh, obviously, for those of us who know the word of God, we know the doctrine of original sin, meaning that in Adam we find the first sin, and that that sin was sufficient and deficient upon all of his uh, children, meaning that it was sufficient to condemn us all, and it was also efficient that it was effective that it passed upon all. The Bible lets us know that uh, when Adam sinned, uh, there was a death in sin. Death passed upon all, for all have sinned. And so we find that the condition that we're in today is not the fault of God at all. It was God's design that man would dwell in a garden and there be at peace and enjoy all the fullness that God had granted him there in Eden, the garden of God. But due to the deceptive nature of Satan coming in and uh, deceiving Eve and then Adam willfully partaking of the fruit, we find that sin entered into the world and once again death by sin and death passed upon all because all is sin. As we read the word of God, we can find in the Psalms, David lets us know in the 14th Psalm that when Adam sinned, that we all together, that's two different words, A-L-L, together, all together, became unprofitable. That means all the children of men. That's who's under consideration there because it says that God looked down upon the children of men. And what did he find? That we all together in one moment when Adam partook of that fruit which God commanded he not eat of, we all together in one moment were dead in trespasses and sins. But then in Psalm 53, David puts it this way that God looks upon the children of men, and what does he find? That we all together, one word, meaning that the sin that we all at one moment were plunged into, all together, it also all together permeates us from the inner core of who we are to our external body itself. So it, uh, it corrupted us completely. That's why we believe in the doctrine of total depravity, because it impacted not only the mind of man, the heart of man, the emotions of man, the physical body of man, and that is realized when we see the gray hair, the wrinkles, and the decaying bodies that we have and how they are failing. And the reality of sin is all around us, but again, it is not the fault of God. If you want to know how God intended this world to be, read Genesis chapter 1. And that will tell you how God intended things to be. The fault of where things are is at Adam's feet. By one man's disobedience, sin entered into the world. Now then, so the question then comes, how can this be repaired? Can it be repaired? The answer from the word of God is, yes, it can be and it has been. And the day is, will, will come that we'll fully realize that. We will see it in totality that God has repaired. God has fixed what man broke. And in fact, God has made it far more glorious than even it was in the Garden of Eden. And we'll see that someday 
And it's a day that I greatly anticipate and look forward to. So God has existed from all eternity. His nature is good. We see that displayed in the creation and his activity toward man. But God is also just and we see that as well when man has fallen. God has made us according to Revelation chapter 4. All things were created by him and they were all created for him. So everything that is made that we see, God is the creator thereof. And that's what David here addresses. So if God will bless us today, I want to focus on God the creator. Now, I am not a scientist. I think you all all know that. Um, my experience with sci science is twofold. <laughs> what I learned in the public school system up until the 12th grade, and then just my own observations uh, throughout 42 years of life. I have no special degree in science and, uh, frankly, never have desired one. I went through science in school because I had to. Uh, I wasn't all that interested in it. Uh, um, I remember in 10th grade having to go through biology and some of the things I learned there were very interesting, things that still I remember to this day about uh, the nature of this world in which th those things were true. And then we had a, a science teacher. He was a believer, thankfully. He had to teach evolution, or at least that that was one theory of where man came from, because the school books uh, had it in it, and that was the curriculum. He was, by law, constrained to teach it. Uh, but he made very clear that he, had, he thought it was foolishness from the very beginning. So, thankfully, I was blessed to come up under uh, training in school where men, they doubted. In fact, they actually didn't just doubt, they totally dismissed the theory of evolution. He believed in a creator. And I'm thankful for that. But So I, I'm no scientist, but neither was David. David's knowledge of science came much like mine, and it was through observation. So David imagined as a shepherd boy spending many nights out in uh, the open, uh, spent his evenings gazing into the heavens. And there was something about that that impressed David, not only in Psalm 19, but also in the 8th Psalm. Because in Psalm 8, he says this, When I consider thy heavens... The work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. He says, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? He says, thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. David understood this. He said, you've made man a little lower than the angels. He says, but you've crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, which is exactly what God told Adam in the garden. That he was to have dominion over the creation which God had made. And so David in the night watches looking over his father's sheep as he gazed into the heavens and he saw the finger work of God. He was amazed by it and he saw the vastness of it, the greatness of it. And then he saw himself in the middle of all that and thought how in the world would a God so big with a creation so big uh, be mindful of someone like me that is so small. He said you've made me a little lower than the angels. But then he says but you've also crowned me with glory and honor and here you put certain things in my dominion and certain things under my feet so here David understood from creation uh, the reality of God but also uh, David's own place in the creation see there's no doctrine in the Bible none at all when fairly applied and correctly applied that does not impact the way we think and the way that we live. Here when David saw it, it humbled him. But it also made him know his place in the world in which God had made. 
And that's exactly what happens when we examine God. It ought to also then make us examine ourselves. And then hopefully from that find uh, what it is that God has called and commanded us to do. So here in Psalm 19 it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Now, in past years, in fact, until last night, every time I read Psalm 19, I would go to this psalm for two very separate reasons. Sometimes I would come to Psalm 19 because I wanted to read about the Creator. Other times I would come to this psalm and I would go directly to verse 7 and read about the law of the Lord, the Word of God. I never have read this psalm together in my study anyway. Now, I've read the psalm But it's always been, I've just read through it in my annual Bible reading and never really have stopped to think what it is that David is doing as he's writing this psalm. It seems very disjointed from verse 6 to verse 7. It is not at all. And as I contemplated that through the night and this morning, uh, I found it amazing what David has done here in this psalm. David has let us know in this psalm that God has chosen to reveal himself in two ways. Uh, uh, First, he has uh, chosen to reveal himself uh, through creation itself. Through the creation, God has revealed himself. And I find that uh, reality uh, taught to us by the Apostle Paul when we read the first chapter of the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, The wrath of God, verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. So here the Apostle Paul just says that God has revealed in man, it's manifest in them, uh, things about God. Notice again, he says, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. He's talking here about all humanity. All humanity has enough evidence, not only uh, from the creation itself, but even in themselves to know that there is a God. Now, they may not understand the things that you and I know about the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. But it is because you and I are made in the image of God. It's, I believe, in the very DNA of man to understand that there is a God. Now, the the atheist and the agnostic and and those liberal thinkers of this world who want to deny the reality of God and deny the creation, it's interesting to me that it is the creation itself that they always attack. Why is it that scientifically they try to attack the creation itself? Because if they can undermine creation and the reality that God is the creator, now they've removed God completely. Uh, but And it also, they're trying to remove God even from their own thoughts and from their own uh, being, if you will. And so they try to delude themselves into believing that there is no God and that this world came from nothing uh, so that they're not answerable to God, number one. But also then they don't uh, have to uh, yield to him and understand what you and I know, that he is Lord over all. Now there's coming a day they're going to know that without doubt. So here Paul says uh, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth. That word hold the truth means suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He says because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God has showed it unto them. Then he says in verse 20 for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. 
Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was dark, and professing themselves to be wise, they became fools." And changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man and the birds and the four-footed beast and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a liar and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So here the apostle lets us know that God is not unrighteous when he measures out his wrath from heaven against all ungodliness. He said, this is why. Because God has put it in man to know that there is a God. And the very fact that they reject that knowledge and rebel against him is the reason they're without excuse. And so when they go down this road, they profess themselves to be wise, they become fools. God gives them over to a reprobate mind. God just lets them go on their journey in wickedness. And the result is they change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man and to birds. He says not only birds, but he says uh, four-footed beasts and creeping things. How many um, cultures throughout history have made idols that either look like a man or some type of animal? been going on for ages just like Paul here declares so here Paul says that the creation itself testifies the reality of God it says not only does it it teaches us about his eternal power and Godhead it not only tells us that God is a powerful God but there are more than one that make up the Godhead so Paul says they're without any excuse. So here, back to Psalm 19, David says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Again, this is coming from a man who was not a scientist. A scientist. He was just a, a casual observer of nature, and maybe even more than casual. He was an observer of nature who loved God. And so as he's there in the night watches, uh, uh, overseeing his father's flock, here he sees the heavens. And when he sees them, he says, they simply declare the glory of God. Now, interestingly, in the first six verses, when creation is talked about, God is only mentioned once. Now, in verses 7 through the rest of the chapter, where it talks about the word of God in Revelation, God's name is mentioned six times, but altogether he's referenced seven times. I find that interesting. Creation is not the primary resource that we go to to know about God. I'm thankful for the creation. Obviously, I'm a part of it. I'm part of, I'm a creature myself. And I'm thankful for what the Word of God teaches me about the Creator. Because it's very important to my life to understand Him as the Creator. But I know most of what I know about God not because I'm an observer of nature. Most of what I know about God is from reading the Word of God and hearing the preached Word of God. And so here David, when he begins to talk about God's Word, God's name comes up six times, but again, he's referenced altogether seven times, which happens to be an interesting number, the number of completion. That tells me that in the Word of God, I have all that I need to know about God. It's all there. Now, does it tell me everything about God? Probably not. But you know what? It tells me all I need to know about God. And in the page of this book, which are uh, so deep and so vast, I will spend a lifetime contemplating, searching, I trust and hope, and studying who God is, his nature, and what he's doing, and what he's done, and what he's promised yet to do. In now 30 years of being a part 
the church and actively trying to study the Word of God, I, I've never found that I've, not one topic in it have I learned. I mean, just last night I'm reading Psalm 19, one of the most common psalms. And it dawns on me for the first time that here I have been such a, uh, an ignorant individual that I've never put the two together. In 42 years of life, in 30 years of active study of the Word of God, something as simple as reading this whole psalm together and understanding that David was making a very important point that God has revealed Himself in two different ways, uh, through nature and also through His Word. I found that exciting. When I saw that around uh, uh, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock last night, I got very thrilled. It was a little hard to go to sleep last night. It was fresh and new, and I love when something like that happens. That's, uh, I love when that happens during the preaching hour, when some man stands up and brings something to my attention that I have uh, never seen before. Uh, I, I want that every time that I hear a message of the gospel. Now, I also want some familiar things told me as well. Uh, but I always love to hear something that I've not considered before. I like to look at things in a different way, at a different angle, so that hopefully it keeps it fresh. So here again, David says, the heavens de declare the glory of God. Not just the reality of God, but the glory of God. Think about that. God's glory is revealed uh, in the heavens. They declare it. So it says the heavens, the heavens preach, if you will. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Then it says, day unto day uttereth speech. Now, that word uttereth there is an interesting word. It actually means to pour it forth like a rushing river. So he says, day unto day, what's happening? The heavens, the firmament, they are pouring forth the, the information of God's glory. Every day, if no minister of the gospel ever uttered another word about God, the heavens would continue preaching. Uh, the firmament would continue to declare that God is glorious. Uh, so God is not dependent upon the gospel ministry to declare himself. Now he has chosen through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And thank God that he's done so. But God does not need me. God does not need you to show forth his glory. The heavens do that themselves. He says day unto day, every single day since the dawn of creation to this present hour, over 6,000 years, every morning that the sun comes up, the day after day, we find that the, the glory of God is just poured forth as a rushing river. And he says, and night unto night showeth knowledge. You know, as I look at the daytime sky, there's usually most days about three things you can see into the heavens. The sun, obviously. Some days the moon. And then you'll see the clouds in the atmosphere. That's typically what you'll see in the daytime sky. But now go to the nighttime sky. And I love to see a bright blue sky with certain kinds of clouds. It's just beautiful. Now I've said before, I am not, you know, David loved to study nature. It really, he saw it as very beautiful. I know that some folks like to go to some of those uh, majestic places on earth for their beauty. I can go there and in five minutes, I'm done. I mean, a rock's a rock after a little while. A tree's a tree. A river's a river. Uh, a lake's a lake. A mountain's a mountain. I, not that I, I, they just don't do for me what they do for others. And I'm thankful that others find them so amazing. And, uh, and I, that's just never been who I am. That's how the Apostle Paul was. When the Apostle looked at creation, he looked at theology. 
That's about how I am. When I look at creation, it makes me think of theology. David, when he looked at creation, it caused praise. Now both are right. And there ought to be some, and there are some things that I see in nature that they, it makes me stop and, and offer praise. Now I don't care to, in fact, uh, uh, Friday evening I was down here with Brother Donald and I was driving home and I knew it was about the time of day that I could not get through Lithia Pinecrest. And so I took Jameson Road because I didn't want to be caught up for 30 minutes at that red light. Uh, by the way, if you know any county commissioners, please call them. That needs to be repaired. Uh, anyway, um, I, I, I know certain times not to go there. So I took Jameson Road. I love that drive. You know, as it, for those who've driven it, you know, you get to that point, that, that turn north where it uh, turns to uh, Walter Hunter Road. There almost every evening you'll see s- several vehicles parked there on the edge of the road, and they're all gathered there to look at the sunset. Almost every time I drive there at that time of day, I don't think there's been a time I've driven by there, there's not a group of people gathered there to watch the sunset. Sunset's a beautiful thing. My thinking, I've, every once in a while I pause, I look at that is gorgeous, and it causes me to praise. Other times, all I'm thinking is, I have to hurry up and get it finished, I'm about to lose daylight. Not that I'm trying to demean the... The creation, it just does not always do for me what it does for Anyway, but David, here he says, day unto day, utter, it poureth forth um, speech. It, it just pours it out. But he says, but night unto night, what does it do? It showeth not. So the daytime speaks, but he says, the nighttime shows something. Uh, anybody who goes out, and one of the great things of West Texas, and there's only a few things great about West Texas. Uh, one of the great things, though, about West Texas, if you don't live in town, you will never see a more beautiful night sky than you will out there on the plains of West Texas. There's miles, miles nothing to thwart your view. And I have spent evenings in West Texas in my youth where I would just just stand and, and sometimes even lay I'd say in the grass, but they're really in grass, lay in the dust and look at the, the heavens. And it shows knowledge. What, what, just think about what shows up at night that you can't see in the daytime. You're going to see the constellations. You may see the planetary system that's out there. You're going to see the universe of God. What does it begin to show? The vastness of God. <laughs> that God is more and that his creation is more than just my little life. Or even this globe upon which we dwell. And as you look further, and if you have a telescope, you can look further than the naked eye. And uh, telescopes are more and more and more advanced all the time to where they can see out billions and billions of miles. And uh, there's just no end to it. Uh, or if, I, don't, I mean, I don't know if there is or not. I mean, they've never been able to find the end to it. That, but there's no end to God. I mean, God himself is eternal. God himself is so expansive that the world cannot contain him. He says, heaven is my throne and the earth is what? my footstool. This place which is so important to us where we spend so much of our energy and time focused on uh, terra firma instead of uh, the celestial world, uh, the heavenly world. Uh, God says, that's just where I put my feet. Uh, now, God's very concerned about what goes on here on planet earth, thank God. <laughs> But it puts in perspective when God says, the place you dwell and consider so important, you're building your lives and your homes and your families and your wealth and your future. He says, that's where I rest my feet. Uh, you know, the footrest of my recliner is not the most uh, desirable part of the chair until I'm ready to prop it up. But anyway, um, 
Here, David says, at nighttime, though, there's knowledge that's shown forth. In the daytime, the heavens declare, they pour forth God's own language of his glory. But at night, you're going to see things you can't see that are going to teach you more about God. He says, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So when the day and the night speak, when the heaven and the firmament, they began to preach their gospel. He says, there's no language... He says, and there's no speech where their voice is not heard. In other words, in every language of mankind, they all can see this. They all can understand. They all can comprehend. Now, it's interesting. In a moment, he's going to start talking about the sun as the center of creation. And it's interesting that he uses the S-U-N as the center of creation because it's actually an allegory or a picture of the true center of creation, which is the S-O-N, the Son of God. Uh, but here he puts his focus on the sun itself and notice what he goes on to say. He says, their line is going to, and, and as you think about the sun, and as you consider uh, world religions and cultures, just study how many have placed their worship around the sun itself, what the sun does. There are so many ungodly religions that have come even from that, that have corrupted what God is preaching from his own creation and they've corrupted it to their own way of thinking and their own ungodly corrupt nature. But anyway, he says, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And then he says, in them, in the heavens, hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. He says, in the heavens, God has set a dwelling place for the sun. Now, David is going to talk about the sun now here, not from a scientific point of view, but from a human perspective. And interestingly, there are some ministers, even among our people, that are very mixed up about, uh, about our, the world in which we live and our universe. See, we understand that the sun is unmovable. It sits where it sits. And every day our earth revolves, and in 24 hours we make a full revolution. And then... In a year, we make a full revolution around the sun. But the sun stays in its place. Now, from our perspective, how does it appear? Even Paul Delegato, who knows science far better than me, he will say something like the sun set. Well, no, the sun didn't set. The earth moved. But from our perspective, it looks like it's the sun moving. It's not, but that's how it appears. So David, that's how he saw it. Now, again, scientifically, we know that the sun is in its place, just like the S-O-N is in his place, firmly enthroned at the right hand of God, the sun that lights nature from where life proceeds, obviously first from God through it, though, that if we did not have sunlight, I mean, I have a, a, a solar-powered gate that a few days ago, because we had so many cloudy days, it was losing power, and it just it, it still opened and closed, but it was slower, and I kept getting concerned uh, because there wasn't enough daylight to, to keep it going. Imagine what it would be like if we lost all daylight. Before long, this earth, all life would cease. There would be no plants growing. <laughs> Uh, there would be no photosynthesis going on so that trees would grow and then uh, carbon dioxide and oxygen would exchange. Before long, we could not breathe. We'd have nothing to eat. This world would collapse without the sun. The same is true about the Lord Jesus Christ. This world would collapse without him. How do I know that? Because in Colossians, it says, by him, all things 
consist. He upholds all things, according to Hebrews 1, by the word of his power. So anyway, here he says, their line has gone out through all the earth. That means the line, the the preaching, if you will, of the heavens. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. So it's like the sun has a tent in the heavens to dwell. So at nighttime, when you don't see the sun anymore, from our perspective, it's like God has set it up a tent and the sun has gone to bed for the night. Now we know that the sun is shining on the other side of the world, but from our point of view, the sun has made its circuit. Now notice what he goes on to say. He says in verse 5, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. Think about the language that David has just selected by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God to describe the sun rising in the morning and setting in the night. He says the sun comes out in the morning as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Why does he use that terminology? Because once again you find David here as he's thinking about the sun that gives forth our light. He's also considering, I believe, the eternal son of God who also is a bridegroom who comes out towards his bride. And there's coming a day that he literally will come for his bride and there will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's not accidental that David uses this language. He says again that the son as a bridegroom cometh out of his chamber but also rejoices as a strong man to run a race. Is there any that can stop the procession of the son? It's only happened one t- twice in history. Twice in history has the son stopped what it normally does. Joshua chapter 10. Joshua's in a battle and the war is going late into the day. And he's almost at the point of victory. But when the night comes, he knows he's in great danger. So what does Joshua do? He says, son, S-U-N, yes, son, stand thou still in Gibeah. And he says, and moon in the valley of Agilon. And you know what the Bible says happened? That the sun did not go down for the space of almost a day. In in fact, in other words, God almost gave me another full 24 hours of sunlight. God contradicted nature to help uh, Joshua and the children of Israel that day. Now I read in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ as he's hanging upon Calvary's cross. That for three hours the sun refused to shine. There was darkness upon the entire earth. It wasn't just darkness at Jerusalem. That darkness pervaded the entire globe. It's as though God pulled a curtain over the sun and would not let its rays reach uh, uh, the landscape of this earth. And God shielded there what was going on between God the Father and God the Son. Two times in history that the sun did not do what God uh, set it in the heavens to do from the creation on the fourth day. Uh, but outside of that, every single day, what has it done? It's run its race as a strong man, and none has stopped it. He goes on to say, His, the sun's going forth is from the end of the heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it. In other words, it starts over here in the east, and it ends over here in the west from our point of view. And he says, and there is nothing hid from the heat Thereof, You know what he's just said? The sun, it impacts this entire globe. Now the reality is the sun actually impacts this entire universe. But from our perspective, it impacts all on the earth. Whether it be the Arctic or the Antarctic. If you want to look at 
the northern hemisphere or the southern. If you want to look at Europe or Asia or the Americas, any of the, of the continents, any of the hemispheres, wherever you want to look, it impacts the seas, it impacts the land, it impacts the sky, it impacts growing, it also impacts uh, our life itself. The sun is so integral to everything of our lives. And no wonder it's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. We find in Malachi chapter 4 verse 3, the Bible lets us know that for those who are discouraged and those who are mourning, that there's coming a time that the capital S-U-N talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in His wings. Why is it that God choose, uh, chose if you, uh, to, to name the Son of God there in that one verse, the S-U-N? Because just like the sun that we see in the sky this morning is providing light and health and life while we're here on this earth, and everything about this globe is dependent upon it. Uh, so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you are so dependent upon Him. It's in Him we live, we move, and we have our being. But it's also in Him that we look for redemption. It's in Him that we know that we shall be delivered. Now verse 7, he changes his topic. Excuse me, he changes his perspective. For years I thought he changed the topic. But he just changes his perspective. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, complete. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. He says, the statutes of the Lord. All this is talking about the word of God. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. He says, and that's six times we've heard the Lord's name, name. More to be desired of they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy, that's referencing God, that's the seventh time. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. The creation is so vital. In fact, let me look at two more verses before we close out this morning. In the book of Isaiah, in fact, the word creator is only found five times in the word of God. Now, the word create and created found many times. I didn't count that. But um, five times the word creator. Four times it's talking about nature. One time in Isaiah 43, it's talking about God who created Israel. So four out of five times, God is called the creator. Now, for something so magnificent. Now, he's again referenced as creator. Many, many times without the term. But here in Isaiah 40, anyway, he's, here's what he says. Isaiah 40, verse 28, he says, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary, there is no searching of his understanding. Now, if you read on, you're going to find why that's important, what he's just said. Notice again, he says, the creator of the ends of the earth fainteth not, neither is he weary. So our creator never gets weak and never gets tired. I get weak and I get tired. Yesterday, I did some construction work at the house. At the end of the day, I was weak and I was also weary. I was tired. That happens for me most days. Uh, that I get weak and I get tired. 
And the more physical labor I do, the more weary I am and the more tired that I am and the more weak that I am. Uh, but anyway, God's not that way. So, but not only do I at times get weary physically and at times do I grow faint physically, but also there's been times in my discipleship, and I'm sure yours as well, where you were weary in the way and you were about to faint away from serving the Lord Jesus Christ. What's good in those moments when you're weary and you're about to faint to stop and think that we have a creator that he never faints and neither is he weary and there's no searching of his understanding. Notice what he said. He giveth power to the faint and to them that have no might he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. That tells me that God the Creator, the knowledge of Him as Creator, has application to my little life every single day. Whether it be physical strength or whether it be the spiritual strength that I need to continue as a faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's moments that Satan's attacks are almost successful. And if it weren't for the help of God that continues to give me strength every day, I would fall. But He gave it power to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increases strength. Why? Because he's never weary. And he's never close to fainting. I need to know that about the creator. I need to know that the one that made me and the one from whom I derive my source of strength in life, he will never grow weak and he will never grow tired. Now turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. In 1 Peter chapter 4, the Apostle Peter is going to connect something extremely important to God being a faithful creator. So not only is God a creator, but he's a faithful creator. Isaiah 40 teaches me that he is a creator that is not weak and who is not tired. Psalm 19, the creation tells me that he's a God of glory. So I've learned from Psalm 19, from the creation, that he's a God of glory. I learn in Isaiah 40 that as creator, he does not grow tired and he does not grow weak. Those are three important things to know. But now I learn in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 19, that he's a faithful creator. So not only is he a glorious creator, he's a strong creator. He's one who never tires out, but he's also one who's full of faith, full of fidelity, one that we can rely on, one that we can trust. Notice what he says, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. You know what Peter has just said? For you, child of God, who endures suffering in this world, he says, don't give up and don't give in. But rather, commit the keeping of it. You know what he's just, he's let us know that your salvation in Christ, that your deliverance from this world, that your home and glory itself is safe because you have a faithful creator. Here he's just let us know that our Redeemer, who is also our creator, is faithful and we can rely upon him. See, the creation and the fact that God is creator is not just some abstract uh, theory that it's good to know about so that you can refute your science teacher in your high school biology class. It's much more important than that. It lets me know that he's glorious. It lets me know that he's strong. It lets me know that he's never going to grow weary. Uh, number one, of strength, but also never weary of me. <laughs> and it also lets me know that he is faithful. 
Now the word of God teaches us, once again, that there's two ways that God reveals himself. And nature itself, which teaches us about his eternal power and Godhead. And then in the word of God. The more you study nature, look for the Lord in it. Whether it be the smallest things, you know, go to the book of Proverbs. He says, go to the ant, thou sluggard. So as something as the other day, Lydia came and told me we had some very, very tiny ants making a trail in our bathroom. I hadn't seen them. They were so small, they were hard to see. She was a little perturbed by that. I don't know what they, well, they were after food. I went in there, I saw them, and they'll either go away or whatever. But anyway, go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. So that tells me that in creation, I can go to something as small as the ants of this world, and I can learn from her. I can learn that I need to be diligent in due season so that when harvest time comes, I've gathered, I've stored, so that in times of want and plenty is gone, that hopefully I've done wise and prepared. He goes on and he talks about the conies, which are a type of a rabbit, how that they make their houses, even though they're a feeble folk, he says they make their houses among the rocks. You know what I need to do? I'm very feeble. Um, and I'm, I'm learning that every day for over three weeks now. A nerve in my shoulder has got me so weary and, and wore down that uh, I've been able to do what I'd like to do. And I realize how feeble I'm becoming. I feel it. I, and what scares me the most is how many more years I probably have left. But anyway, I, we're feeble. You may be young and in the, the strongest part of your, of your experience that you'll ever be. But one stroke is all it would take. You know what I mean? Not a little, but one stroke of some horrific accident and your life could be gone. We are feeble. He says the conies, they're a feeble folk, but they make their houses among the rocks. You know what I learned from that? That there's a rock that's higher than I, the Lord Jesus Christ, that I need to make my house. That I'm feeble and I need to flee to him. Because he's a faithful creator. And he's going to take care of me. And he'll take care of you. That's not abstract. That's very real. That's impactful. That ought to alter our lives. So the study of God is not something just for theologians in some dark library uh, to pass the time of their, their high mind. It's something that is very, very needful for just you and me who are trying to get through life day by day, struggling through and carrying on. And in the moments that you're weak and tired, you can stop and think about Isaiah chapter 40 where it tells you that your creator, he is not faint. He is not weary. And even though the youth shall fall, what is he able to do? He's able to give strength to those that are without it. And then he says, they that wait upon the Lord. <laughs> What's going to happen? They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's what happens when a child of God rests upon the creator. So learning about God the creator, again, is not dead theology. It's very enlivening. So here again, as we close this morning, David has said in this psalm that there's two things that teach us about the reality of God. The heavens, but that's incomplete. 
It shows us, but only so much. But then we turn to the Word of God. And thank God that He has given it to you and to me. That I have been blessed to live in a land where it was freely available. And dwell in an area where the gospel was proclaimed on a regular basis. And to be brought up in the proximity of a great grandmother who was an old Baptist who faithfully went to the house of God and heard the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet was so kind to me that I couldn't help but want to be with her and go to that old wood frame building that at first I found boring and tiresome, but after a little while I found it was the light of my life and has been now for 30 years. God has brought me to his banqueting house. He's, as I love what it says, you know, when Abraham sent his servant for a wife for Isaac, he said, I being in the way, I being in the way, in the way, in the way of God's providence, in the way of prayer, in the way of faithfulness, he said, I was led to the house of my master's brethren. <laughs> well, I was in the way, and I was led to the house of my master's brethren. It's been a wonderful journey, but thank God that through that I was able to hear the word of God and, and I've said this before, and I wish I had the fervor for God's word that I had when I was about ages 12 to 18. As I've said before, most of the verses that I can quote without looking at them, that's, that, those were verses I read back then and committed to memory then. I can sit over there in the song service and I can try and try and try to commit a new verse to memory, and I probably can't quote it. I just, I can't anymore. So, but back then I devoured the word of God, learned so much about it. I was thankful to be around men like Brother Sonny Piles and to be able to hear such in-depth preaching uh, and other, many, many other men like, like him that, thank God, I was blessed to be around so that I didn't just have to depend on what nature preaches about God, but I was able to hear true gospel ministers expound about the same God that I could see in nature from the word of God, which was far more complete than anything I could ever learn from studying nature. Now, I'll say this, anybody that does study nature, and there's some scientists that have arrived at the right conclusion that the more and more that they look at it, they finally have to confess that there is a God. They understand that if they're honest with themselves, that's where it leads them. If they're honest with themselves and will not go into it so prejudiced, but with an open mind, nature itself will bring you to the fact that God is glorious uh, we will see about him uh, things that are vast and deep, such an expanse that can never fully be understood. That's the God that we serve. He's eternal. <laughs> He's above time. See, we, we live in time, space, matter. God is beyond all of that. God is not confined by time. There's no space that can hold him. He's not material. God is a spirit, John's, uh, Jesus says in John 4. So all the things that make up our world, God is above those things, outside of those things. But he's made those things, and he's governor of those things. He's the one who's created them for our benefit, but only for his glory. So there is a God. The Bible teaches about him. Nature teaches about him. And when a child of God is so blessed to be able to be in the house of God, to hear a true man of God who understands the word of God, bring those two things together. What a strong, strong... You know, the Bible says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. You have the witness of God's word and the witness of nature itself to testify to you of God's existence, but also of his glory, of his strength, of his endurance, and of his faithfulness. May God bless you, sir.